Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplified podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplified producer at Nottingham Playhouse. Joining me for a chat today is the director, Nick Bagnall. Between 2015 and 2020, Nick was the associate director at the Everyman and Playhouse in Liverpool, where for the Everyman Company, he directed The Big I Am, A Clockwork Orange, Romeo and Juliet and The Conquest of the South Pole. Nick's further work includes The Last Days of Troy and Britannia Waves the Rules at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, Betrayal at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, and at Shakespeare's Globe, Two Gentlemen of Verona and Henry VI, parts one, two and three. A lovely old chat with Nick. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I'll speak to you soon. Hello, Nick. Thank you for joining us on the Amplify podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thanks, Craig. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. All good. We're starting uh, all of these uh, podcasts with the question, what does uh, social distancing look like for you? What are you up to? Oh, well, I've sorted my yard out, actually. I've been trying to do my yard for the last three years, and the kids and the missus have been complaining with me for literally about three years. And then the last three days, I've blasted it, and it looks beautiful. So social distancing is outside in the yard, um, bleaching the flagstones and pruning all my dead flowers at the moment. Um, so it looks rather nice, and it's rather sunny. Um, apart from that, not much else, mate, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little scary, and there's five of us in the house. Actually, there's one, two, three. There's five of us plus a dog, so it gets a little bit on top. But yeah. we're all right. We're getting through. There's a little bit of space for us to all have our own rooms. Um, and Karina's still, my missus is still at work because she's a key worker. So, um, yeah, so oh. it is, it's a bit scary, but we're all right. We're, we're good. I'm distancing myself enough. I'm always quite good at social distancing anyway, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not something that I feel is enforced on me. I'm quite good at that anyway, mate. And are you, uh, you're still up in Liverpool, aren't you? Yeah, no, based up here now for five years. Uh, moved up to do uh, to become the associate at uh, the Everyman and Playhouse. And then left there in November. But family are all settled here. And uh, uh, yeah, love it, actually. Really happy. Got a lovely house here. And um, yeah, I think Liverpool's great. It suits me at the moment. Never say never. I think there's plans to move on at some point. But um, it's easy to freelance from here because it's so, you know, it's such a good city and I couldn't possibly move back to London just yet just because of prices, really. So, um, no, we're happy and I like Liverpool a lot. Yeah. Um, so where, where are you from, Nick? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Scarborough, North Yorkshire, um, and I left there when I was 16, just turned 16, desperate to leave Scarborough. Um, but now I go back. My mum's still there. My sister actually is, is based there, although she's over in Thailand and can't get over at the moment, get home at the moment. Um, so I've still got family there. My mum still lives there in Scarborough. And actually now I, ra- I rather like visiting it now, actually. It's a it's a beautiful place to look at. It's a shithole to grow up in, but it's a, <laughs> it's a great place. It's a you know, it's rather beautiful Scarborough when you look when you look at it now. Um, so, yeah, born in Scarborough and then moved to London when I was. 18 to go to drama school and then spent 20 odd years in London uh, being an actor and doing all that and then uh, moved to Brighton, moved to Hastings, just wanted to get out of London, went back up north, uh, did uh, kind of was artistic director of a uh, building up north with a mate of mine, a dilapidated old council building we took on in Moulton in Yorkshire called the Milton Rooms, did that for a few years and then 
um, was offered a few associateships actually, and then was uh, Gemma offered me the Liverpool one. And I kind of bit a hand off actually thinking about what I wanted to do in the future. And it felt like a really good opportunity. So, so yeah, from Scarborough to here, really, but all around the houses, but London mostly in between. And where, where does the theatre thing come from? Do you come, uh, are there arts in your family or is it something you I, found on your own? Well, my dad was a musician. My dad was a really brilliant musician. He was, in a, he was in a band in the 60s. He was in a lot of band in the 60s, but the big one was a band called the Incas which was a big mod band in the 60s. And uh, I believe Robert Palmer um, was uh, part of that band. So he was uh, very much into music. And all through my childhood, when he used to pick us up on weekends, because my mum and him were separate, had separated. He used to pick us up on weekends. I used to go to gigs with him. But it was at a time sort of the early 80s where his, kind of, his career had kind of faded slightly. Um, so he was doing pubs and clubs and working men's clubs. So my childhood was basically just following him around pubs and clubs and watching him get pissed while I kind of did his leads and put his amps together. And uh, so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a kind of creative streak in him, but it was nowhere else. I mean, I started uh, being involved in theatre when I was eight by complete accident. But I think the creative gene may come from my dad because he was an incredible singer songwriter. Um, so, yeah, I think so. I think that's the only side of the family. I mean, that side of the family is is probably where it comes from. Um, and I sing and play guitar, but not anywhere near the standard my dad did. So probably my dad is the short answer, I reckon. Um, and uh, what what was the accident that got you to start theatre when you were eight? Was that was that like a youth theatre or at school? Yeah, well, what? yeah, I was mad about sport. I was mad about sport from a very early age. I, I was um, really very um I, I was I, I played football to a high standard I played cricket for Yorkshire boys I was judo I was a re, I was a championship judo I was the third best in northern England I, I did lots of championships in judo so about the age of eight or nine I went into the uh, local YMCA to play five-a-side football because as I said I was mad about sports and uh, I ended up playing Oliver Twist they cast me in that and then from then at the local YMCA, which is where my stepdad used to work as a youth leader, um, I started doing all their pantomimes and their young entertainer of the year competitions where I'd sing. Uh, well, I'd sing and I won competitions and I kind of did all of that. I did all the musicals in the summer. I did, uh, as I said, did all the pantomimes in Scarborough. I played to um, a, an amazing theatre in Scarborough called the Open Air Theatre when I was about 12, 13, which seated 6,000 people outside. And it used to be a thing in Scarborough that would be packed every summer. And I did the last one of those. And I, can't, I think I was about 12. Um, so, yeah, it was all based around the local YMCA, actually. So I'd play football, do judo, and then I'd also do some uh, theatre and singing. Uh, and that went on till I was about 14. Uh, and then uh, my dad passed away when I was quite young, when I was 13, 14. And then I decided that, well, kind of things got in the way and I didn't really want to be going to the YMCA anymore. I didn't want to do any musicals. So I spent a couple of years kind of um, from 14 to 16 at school getting on. And then at 16, thought, God, I don't know what to do. I haven't got anything to do. So I applied for some drama schools, some BTEC foundation courses, which then uh, took me out of uh, Scarborough. And I went to Harrogate at the age of 16 and uh, did a BTEC in performing arts. What was the moment when you decided, like, yeah, this is the thing for me. This is what I'm, how I'm going to make my living. 
I think it was probably um, I, it probably happened quite early because I would you know without I, I felt like I was really good at it and I you know I got a lot of praise for it and people were you know as an actor people were saying I didn't really know what acting was then I suppose I mean I was just doing musicals and pantomimes so it was all about big entertainment stuff which I thoroughly enjoyed and um, I remember the feeling of standing in front of uh, lots of people and them all cheering me and me thinking this is the way to be and I uh, I thought I thoroughly enjoyed that but I think. One of the moments was when I was at Harrogate College. I mean, I'd done the BTEC in, I was doing the BTEC in performing arts, and um, Jim Cartwright's Road had just come out, or it certainly had just been handed to me. And until then, I wasn't really sure about um, how, um, whether I was going to be, whether I was going to be able to make a career out of acting. And then all of a sudden, this play landed on my lap, and I read it, and uh, it kind of blew my head because it felt like it was talking directly to me, and I hadn't really had that moment before. So I think that was a really seminal moment was uh, was Road, actually, the Jim Cartwright play. And uh, what I did then was we had a project at Harrogate College, which was um, to direct a show. And of course, I directed Road. But not only did I direct it, I gave myself the lead part as well. Um, and I think that was a pretty that was a moment where I realized not only um, theatre could be for me and it could be sexy and it could be thrilling and it could be it could speak to me and I could have a voice in it. Um, I also realised subconsciously that I wanted to steer my own ship, I think. So that was quite a big moment, was Road, Jim Cartwright. And it's really nice because um, I've got a really good relationship with Jim now, actually. From uh, a few years back, we we met up and uh, I told him this story. And he's probably heard this story from thousands of people like me. But um, it's really nice that I've actually got a really strong relationship with Jim now. And we're, we're in the process of doing something else together as we speak. So... Yeah, I think that would be the seminal moment, Craig, definitely. Certainly one I can remember. That and being cheered at by loads of girls and being, <laughs> you know, really and kind of thinking, God, this is great, isn't it? This is better than cricket on a Sunday morning, you know? So, yeah, I think so. There's a lot of that going on as well. <clears throat> um, and then you, uh, you go off to drama school. Do you remember how you found out that that was, uh, that was a thing that you could do or that that was the pathway that made the most sense to doing this for a living? Yeah, I do. I mean, I was, I was terrible at school in the sense that I just didn't engage academically at all. I don't think I was stupid. I just didn't engage. I was far more interested in the social side of school. But we had a brilliant drama teacher called Mr. Tolbert who uh, took me to one side, actually, <clears throat> and said to me, look, you, you could make a career out of this if you're serious about it. Um, and of course, I wasn't ser that serious about it then. But he gave me all the steps. So I kind of I auditioned for the National uh, uh, oh, what did call, National uh, Student drama festival I didn't get in um but he kept pushing me and pushing me and then eventually he kind of gave me a pathway which I'll always remember was really clear which is go and do a BTEC in performing arts I haven't got any I didn't get any GCSEs I didn't get any of that um but he was really clear he said you know all you need to do for these things is audition so he found speeches for me um and he was he was <clears throat> um he stuck with me actually and gave me that path and I think once I was at Harrogate um I spent a lot of time being a student at Harrogate, reading to that what you will. But um, <laughs> uh, from there, it was really clear that I could, uh, people were going to other drama schools, uh, to, like going down to London to train in proper drama schools for three years. And so in the second year, I applied to three, which was uh, RADA, Guildhall and Central. And I was really lucky. I got into all three of them, but I chose Guildhall because uh, 
I met a mate down there. I met a lad down there on the first audition and we got on really well and he got in. So we both decided we'd go there. It was simple as that, really. Um, but yeah, then that was really clear once I got to Gilgal, which was, you know, very mixed for me. Um, but once I got there, it was really clear that I could um, pursue this, I think. Uh, you mean it was a, a mixed experience in terms of like enjoying it and yeah, I, was, I, I hated the first year with a spirit. I absolutely hated it. It was um, it was at a time when I was raving quite a lot, and the rave scene was in there, and I really got into that. And um, so I was partying in Huddersfield and Manchester in a, a club called um, Orbit in Otley, and I spent a lot of weekends kind of dancing my head off for um, two nights, and the. Uh, drama school didn't I was I'd already got a place I'd got there and I was turning up late and I just wasn't disciplined for it they asked me if I wanted to start again and I said no so I had to buckle down and I just kind of I was I think thinking back I was kind of um I was a bit lonely in London actually I think I was I think moving from Scarborough and Harrogate and being with lots of friends and then going to Guildhall and actually realizing that it's real graft this um, so the first year was really hard. I found it really difficult. I didn't help myself, but I was having far too good a time partying. And then in the second year, it kind of it turned on its head and I went in the complete opposite direction. I realized that um, all these things were being thrown at me, like all these reference points now, which I probably couldn't do without. Of all part of my, all came through that second year at drama school for me. Um, and I had some amazing teachers who really stuck with me, like Patsy Rodenberg and Ken Rayer and Sean McEnany. These were really great teachers who stuck with me and and pushed me. And in that second year, I started to get into all these great writers. Like, you know, I was starting to look at Brecht and all these people that were really um, that really affected me and these theatre makers. And, you know, of course, I was reading lots of Peter Brook and I was with a really good gang of people in that second year. And it really turned around. And I mean, it literally turned on its head. And from being this lazy arse who didn't want to be there to being completely obsessed with the whole process of it, actually, and and really digging into everything. Um, so the second year was great. And then the third year, I was really lucky because I got some really nice parts. And I got an agent really quickly. So I was out into the real world um, really quite quickly in the third year. I didn't have to do the last show because um, I'd got another job. So I think the first year was hell for me, but that was for many reasons. And then the second year was an absolute joy. So I think it's probably it's probably a good example of about how I live my life, really. I kind of live in extremes, I think. And uh, there, no, there wasn't much middle ground at drama school. It was either hating it or loving it. Um, but yeah, it was... Without it, I don't know where I'd be, to be honest, because I have no discipline whatsoever when I got there. And it really did instill discipline in me. And it's something that I think when it comes to me as a director, I'm, I run a really fun room. But I'm, I feel like um, the things I've learned from that second year at Guildhall um, really come into play in my rehearsal room, which is, you know, firm fun is a, a good way of describing it. You know, I don't like lateness i don't like laziness all those things and they were things that were instilled in me quite early at guildhall by those teachers that i mentioned and then you, you leave guildhall and uh you're you're a successful actor for what 10 years yeah more man actually because i juggled the acting and directing so the first job i got was i spent two years with katie mitchell i went to um straight into the rsc to the henry the sixth part three with katie mitchell at the uh the other place in Stratford and then we did a world tour so my first job I went around the world I went to South America um to Japan 
to lots of places in Europe, to Los Angeles. We went everywhere with this tour with Katie Mitchell. And, you know, I look back and I think I was, it was the luckiest job on the planet. And then from that, she took me to uh, the National. So my first two jobs were the RSC and the National with Katie. And uh, the second job was slightly soured because it was a, a play called The Machine Wreckers, Ernst Toller play, which I know oh, you know. Which, <laughs> yeah, but a cracking play. You know, with the right, I mean, I'd love to have another go at it, actually, because, as a director, but it's a cracking play. But it was a really weird time because I think we all call it the career records because it was taken off early because nobody wanted to see it. I think it was about four and a half hours long and it was uh, it was a really big, bold production, but it just didn't work. And I think Katie would be the first one to say it. So the second year with Katie was really tricky for many reasons. But again, she was another person that. And I learned an awful lot of stuff from Katie and she flew the flag for me and, and all that. So then, yeah, continued acting, did a lot of telly, did a lot of theatre, worked in most places in theatre, and um, but was always in the back of my mind aware that I wanted to direct. Um, and oh, you always a, knew that, did you? That was always... I did, I did. I was kind of, I think from that, when I said about being in Harrogate, I can't, when I did Road, I kind of realized that I wanted to steer my own ship and wanted to, you know, I think, and I wasn't really sure what that meant or how to do that. And then in about 1999, something like that, I decided I was just going to beg, borrow some money and do a production. So I did a production of Joe Orton's Ruffian on the Stair above the old Red Lion in Islington. And uh, it went down really well. And the Autumn Estate came to see it and uh, it extended. And it was a really, you know, I kind of, I realised then that I could do that as well. So I then juggled the acting and directing for about, uh, I suppose, about 10 years after that moment. Um, and then it just got increasingly uh, harder to do that um, because I was getting quite a lot of work as a director, but I was also still having a career as an actor. Um, so, yeah, that was hard to juggle. Plus, I was um, I was far I'm far happier and far healthier when I direct rather than act. I lost the buzz for acting quite quickly once I'd started to direct properly. Um, never say never, but I can't. You know, it's it, it's an, it, it, it doesn't give me the, the the satisfaction that directing does. So yeah, um, kind of moved on from there, really. When you when you did that uh, first show, when you did the ruffian on the stair at the old Red Lion, um, were you terrified? Because I I, I imagine like suddenly, because you you were very you were a very successful actor, you worked in all the great places with all the great people, uh, so you have this collection of really impressive peers, and then suddenly you're directing a play in a room of a pub, and people are coming to see it. I just wonder what was the what was the jeopardy there for you? I fucking loved it, man. I loved every minute of it, every minute of it. From uh, a friend of mine saying, let's do this, to getting the creative team together, to, um, you know, realising that, again, this was a writer that spoke to me, like really kind of hit me in the gut, did Autumn. And there hadn't been many of them. So I knew I was making the right decision and I was being really bold and really, you know, I, I took it to a really dark place, that play. And I loved every single minute of it. I mean, we had no money. We had no, you know, there was nothing. It was doing everything. I remember, you know, I got I pulled in favours from great designer and great sound designer and a composer, a friend of mine. And I just remember the feeling of getting this team together and realising. And I think that's probably it might come in later with when we chat, but I think that's where I realised that theatre is about great collaborations. And from that, I realised that you're only as good as the people around you, starting with the material you're working with. And actually, I got a real buzz out of leading that team, you know, and then putting it in the space and being in such an intimate environment. And 
then getting the response from the Orton estate, which was thrilling, just saying this was, an, you know, I'd got it right. I pitched it perfectly. So I kind of felt like it was exactly the right thing for me to be doing. And uh, I was a really good friend with Kathy Burke at the time, who lives in Islington. And it was her that kind of, you know, her love of Orton put me onto Orton. And I remember her saying some stuff about it. And just It was kind of like, oh, my God, people really did think I could do it. So it gave me a loads of confidence, actually. And it gave me the confidence to start searching for stuff I wanted to do and putting myself out there a bit. And it took quite a long time for people to stop thinking of me as an actor. That was the biggest hurdle I had to get over, actually, was the people just because I'd worked in so many places and I'd had quite a nice career. It was like people just saw me as an actor. And actually to get over that hurdle was a really it was an exciting challenge, actually. So, no, I, I can't remember any trepidation apart from thinking, I hope people like it. But there was a part of me that just thought, you know what? This is for the first time in ages. I'm doing something that connects me head to my stomach. And I felt like I was doing things uh, my way with the help of some really brilliant people around me. So I can't remember it being a frightening experience. I just remember it being thrilling. Picking up on what you've just said, now would be a really good, uh, good, uh, good time to talk about uh, process because yeah. uh, obviously we work together uh, at the yeah. Edinburgh in Liverpool and the one thing that I uh, loved most of all about the process of working with you uh, as a dramaturg and you as a director uh, was the sense of team. And for me, yeah. uh, uh, working on your productions, it really did feel like, um, I too played a lot of sport as a young man, felt like uh, being part of that team again, being part of yeah. that environment and uh, everybody uh, really working together to the same end. So I wonder if you can talk about um, the stuff you do in a rehearsal room and, and again, building that sense of team and how important that is to the productions that you make. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I'm really chuffed you said that because it's not a conscious thing. I think it's just... Um, I don't, I don't know where it comes from. All the people I admire, I think, work in pretty similar ways or certainly heading towards the same goal. You know, people like Mike at Knee High are people I really admire and watching how he runs a room is kind of inspiring. Um, yeah, I mean, I do. I'm, I'm a great believer in... Uh, I mean, I'm you know, I'm pretty clear about what I want. I'm just pretty good at leaving it outside the door until it's absolutely necessary for me to be firm about what I want. Um I like being in a rehearsal room. I feel like that's where I belong. And uh, I'm very careful about who I pick to be part of my team. And I think it's funny you should say that when we work together, because I think that's probably one of the, the and I'm not just saying this, but I think Conquest of the South Pole, was, which we did at the Everyman together, I think was probably one of the shows I'm most proud of because it was an unknown thing. And it needed um, real intelligence and real sharpness and real boldness around it so i think choosing a team that was prepared to take risks and uh, and go there with that i think and including yourself in that i think that was one of the most joyous times where i thought collaboration was um a, a really a, a massive thing i think there was a there was a moment in my directing career where um i was i did and again another joe orton play but i did entertaining mr sloan in the west end with imelda staunton and simon paisley day and matthew horn and richard bremer and it was you know it was an incredible experience because it was me i was really i was working with people at the top of their game and it really pushed me and i remember walking into a rehearsal room and i was juggling the directing and i was also juggling the acting at the same time and imelda just said to me you're not happy are you and i said oh i'm really happy in here i said i'm just not very happy about you know, the acting. And she said, give it up, concentrate on this. You can do it. And I remember those words kind of ringing in my head. 
And I did that day. I rung my acting agent and said, I'm not going to do it. And we spoke, we're not going to do the acting anymore. And we, I spoke to Imelda about that moment. And it was to do with the fact that she talked about how I ran a room. And I just ran a room with them. Um, you know, everybody has a voice. It's very clear about where we're heading. There's no fuss around it, but it's a really enjoyable, playful experience. And I think that's uh, that's how I like to work um, on any piece I do. But I think it also comes on a, you know, it's a case by case basis. I've just done Tony Harrison's Doomsday, um, which is an incredible piece. But it, it you know, there was uh, did it at Lipper, the drama school. And it's, you know, there's 16, 18 people in it. And there's only so many voices you can have in a room when there's 18 drama students. So I think I kind of, you know, I think playful is the key. And as I said, it's it's really important to me to listen to other people. And there's I work with some incredible creatives like, you know, yourself included and James Fortune, the composer I've worked with a lot. And we're all collaborators and we're all I think we all come from the same place, which is let's create a play together. Um, so it's, it's I, I find it difficult to talk about because I think it's all about what I respond to in the room on a daily basis, you know, about I listen and respond to the room, which is something I think I learned as an actor about listening and responding um, and, uh, yeah, allowing yourself to be flexible. And uh, as I've said, I think there's some great theatre makers that I admire and Mike, Mike Shepard to watch him run a room is really incredible because there's a sense of there's a real sense of anarchy in that room. And yet it's once you see his productions they're so specific and so precise and but that all comes from a kind of anarchic feel and i think that's probably why you quite enjoyed it as well because <laughs> i know you've got that in you as well i mean i don't you know I, I want to go and enjoy myself during a, a work day i really do and i get frustrated when i'm not working and not directing you direct some great productions and some great theatres, and then you uh, you get to Liverpool as the associate director of the Everyman. And what I'd really like to talk about now is uh, the failed project, but the gloriously failed project of the Everyman yeah. of the Everyman Company. Um, yeah, and uh, that thing I like you just was a glorious failure. Yeah, it's a nice way of phrasing it. I think. But that that thing you said about uh, uh, you know let's all get together and make a play. I think that yeah. uh, certainly the six months of the first Everyman Company, um, yeah. and you can talk a little bit about what it was. That first six months really it felt like that writ large, didn't it? It was every everyone yeah. doing everything they could to um, make uh, the best work possible that was specific to the time and place. Uh, so yeah. yeah, for those that don't tell. Um, Tell us a bit about what uh, the Everyman Company was and where the idea came from. So basically, the uh, the idea was that we had a company, I think it was 14 actors, and they'd be there for six, seven months in the Everyman, and they'd be the Everyman Company, and it was a hugely ambitious project. They'd do five plays over the course of six months, but the idea, the ambition lied in not just doing work on our stages, but being part of our community, being part of... Um, building work creating work workshops um uh yeah kind of been the very fabric of the building kind of living and breathing the everyman and i think the ambition was really really admirable and huge and we learned that quite quickly that actually you can only do so much um and uh, it was the first the first company season for me was some of the most playful exciting times i've ever had as a director i was doing plays that i wanted to do i was doing working with people who were just up for throwing things in a room and seeing what happened i mean you did the edit of romeo and juliet and i mean i think i had six full days to rehearse that with anybody i wanted to do and that included 50 of the youth theater as well so it was basically like 
trust your instincts and get on with it. And that was a really exciting thing to do. Um, but we realized quite early on, probably about three months into it, that, you know, we were all dribbling in corners and we were absolutely knackered. Um, but that wasn't to say that it was um, it was unsuccessful because it wasn't. But I think what happened in the second year was I don't think there was the appetite for it. Um, we made some big decisions in the second year to do things differently, to change the model. So we did four plays as opposed to five. And I think it slightly diluted itself. And um, it became, and it wasn't just about finance, I don't think. I think it was to do with what the city was wanting. And we really hoped that they'd want to see a company of actors and, and follow that journey through with actors. But it's... Um, I mean, financially, people people can't afford to go to the theatre every night and, fall, and do five plays in six months. Um, so I think it. I, I love the phrase "glorious failure" because we threw everything at it, heart and soul, and um, it 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 didn't turn out to be what it wanted to be. But I mean, I feel still quite bereft about it because I think we should have been given another go. I think two goes it, it wasn't enough. I think three goes we'd have learned an awful lot more. And for whatever reason, that didn't happen. But I think that's, uh, yeah, I felt I was grieving it when it left, to be honest. Because as I say, it was some of the most exciting, impulsive times. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was, as you can tell, I was really, it's a, it's a, it's a sadness thinking about the loss of the Everyman Company. Um, yeah. And um, I mean, both companies were fantastic, but um, particularly that first company, by the end of their time together, what they were able to achieve as a collective was uh, remarkable. I yeah. remember sitting with you in a reading of um, uh, Bob Farquhar's adaptation of Pierre Gint that we were considering for the next year um, yeah, yeah. With, the, with those actors. And, you know, bearing yeah. in mind they'd never seen the play before. Uh, there was only about 30 pages of it. It was barely written. But yeah, uh, seeing, seeing them after they'd spent that time together, sit around that table and the connection they had and how they yeah. could bring that thing to life so immediately and trust yeah. each other and play and go. Just at a cold reading, it was, um, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, a it great was time. thrilling. It was thrilling. And of course, that went on. And then I directed that the year after. And that all came from that read through in that first season. Because for me, I think the big I am. Uh, which is event ended up being called the P again, Bob Farquhar's P again, the big I am. I think probably if there is such a thing as an everyman show, that was probably the most everyman show I've ever done because it was so inclusive, it was playful, it was challenging. Uh, but it all came from, as you said, from that first reading of it, where that company was so tight and so playful. And yeah, I mean, without that reading, I don't think we'd have uh, done it the year after. But no, you're right. They they formed the unit, which was at times incredibly scary about how forthright they were as a company as well. But um, no, it was uh, it was a thrilling time. Um, and uh, we we talked a little bit a bit about process before, but I'm just conscious that there'll be uh, a few um, emerging and early career directors listening to this, uh, thinking about process, and and right now having a lot of time to think about it. And yeah, I just wondered yeah. if there were any. Um, sources or books that were important to you when you were uh, think, thinking about uh, being a director and uh, you know I, uh, I was, your aesthetic and stuff? I was really lucky I think because I came at it from an actor from an actor's point of view that still stays with me so I'm always very it's it's a I mean I don't really know the answer to that because actually I mean I've read lots of books and you know my reference points are everywhere but I think most of my work in a in a room 
comes from the fact that I know that the actors are the front line. I know when to take my foot off the gas and when to put it on. I know the process really well. And I think that's an advantage for me. And that's not to say that it's a disadvantage not knowing that process. But I think it means I can take shortcuts with actors. I also think it means that they trust me because I've had a career as an actor and I understand you know, the pressures and the pitfalls and, the, you know, and the fear and the joy of being an actor. And I think that's probably 90% of my understanding of how I run a rehearsal room is the fact that I've been an actor and I've been on the, I've been on the other side of it. So when it comes to, I think my reference points have always been to do with performance and uh, as in, you know, I, like I've just said, but I think when I'm when I'm looking at a piece, I'm able to understand where an act, how an actor can get to where he needs to get to, um, without it being me telling them exactly what to do. And I think I, I thought of my process a lot because I've had a you know the last couple of weeks has been pretty scary as a freelancer again because I've had a few jobs that have kind of fallen by the wayside, been postponed or cancelled, and it's kind of like. In a weird way, I was talking to a friend of mine. God, this is sound. Our poet laureate, Simon Armitage, which, by the way, have you listened to his new podcast? It's brilliant. No, I haven't. The, the poet laureate goes to his shed, right? And he does um, a podcast. And it's an hour long. The first one is Guy Garvey. The second one is Kate Tempest. And the third one is a guy called, oh, I can't remember his name. He's a rapper. But he's, he's translating a medieval poem about the owl and the nightingale. And he gets this input from these... Uh, these guests in his shed in his house in Huddersfield get on it. It's absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Um, I don't know so, why. I don't, I don't no, know why no. that. Came. Well, one of my uh, one of my questions was going to be: Can you recommend something for us to enjoy during these times of social distancing? So I think I think that'll cover it. Do that, I promise you. And I think is what it, I think the reason I mentioned it was because um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what I want to do next because you know through no fault of my own these jobs that I was really passionate about have now either been postponed or been cancelled. And as I say, that's a really scary thing. But what it's made me do is while I'm gutting my yard, it's made me think about what I actually do. And I've taken a, you know, and stop and just step back and kind of just relax a little bit and breathe and remember those, you know, those early jobs that I did, which really excited me, like the ruffian on the stair. And that was all, you know, that was coming from a place of, of real joy and not the stress of having to get a product up and running. It was actually the process, which was the thing that really excited me. Um, and I've had lots of conversations with people about this. Again, Mike at Nehi, we talk about it a lot, about what is the essence of what we do and what is it, why do we do it? And I think this has been a really good opportunity for me to just think about things a little bit. I'm constantly on the move, as you know, and I've got loads of energy, but actually I've been forced to kind of stop. And uh, it's... It, the reason I mentioned Simon was because he talks about this a lot. He talks about giving yourself time to breathe and it's been forced on me, but I've kind of, I think I've, you know, I think I've delved into my process more than I've ever done by not working and realizing what I enjoy about my work. Um, but yeah, the podcast is a really good way of, um, of wasting our time at the moment. I can't <laughs> recommend it highly enough. But also, do you know what? Those books that you gave me, I'm constant. I'm really into this Johan Hari, you know, The Lost Connections. I devoured it again last oh, week. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's a brilliant it's book. Yeah. Really incredible stuff. And what's the Chasing the Scream? Yeah. And so, I think, yeah, Chasing the Scream is about America's war on drugs from its inception in the 1920s to the present day and Lost okay. Connections, which I think is my, uh, my favorite of 
Johan Hari's books is yeah. about um, alternative approaches to the and ideas about the causes and treatment of depression. Yeah, yeah, and they're just fantastic, and they're so they're they're a kind of they're a page turner, even though the subject matter seems really heavy and really dense. It's so beautifully written. So I've been getting into that. Listening to loads of music is my way of getting over these times as well, like loads of music. Um, I'm not really, what you know, I feel bad saying this, but all this stuff that's coming online, the theatre online for free, I haven't done any of that. I've been obsessed with this, uh, with these cop documentaries. That's how I spend my time, 24-7. Just <laughs> <laughs> love them. So I devour the television, all these channels for any kind of crappy cop documentary. I don't know what that says. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, my final question before I let you go is, yeah. can you tell us the last piece of art that absolutely blew your mind? Oh, wow. Wow. Um, that blew my mind. It's been a while. Um, Kate Tempest's last album. I absolutely adore it. It's, it goes to a place which is so riddled with darkness and fear. And then it comes out of the other side. It feels like a really brave piece of work. And that's just off the top of my head, because looking around where I'm sat now, I'm sure there's lots of other things I could name. But that's most certainly when it comes to music, a piece of art, that Kate Tempest's last album, I'd absolutely say. But I've just read... Um, a new play by Simon Armitage, which has blown my mind as well. So there's a lot out there and it's coming my way, but I'd say off the top of my head, the Kate Tempest last album. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Thanks very much. Never knew, I never knew I had so much to say. <laughs> anyway, listen, man, thank you, Craig. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghampleyhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released. Mm-hmm.